Morning, church. Um, our Bible reading for today is from the book of Genesis 6 to 7. When men began to multiply on the face of the on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of the men were attractive, and they took as their wives as they and 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 they and they chose. Then the Lord <clears throat> Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in, them, in man forever, for he, is, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters, son of God came into the daughters of men and bore children of them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the, in the, word, in the earth, and that every intention of, thought, of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out men whom I have created from the face of the land, men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I had made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupt their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark or gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are made to it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to the cubit above. And set the door of the ark and its side. Make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh." You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up, 
It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the, dark, into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take me with seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the, sev of the heavens also, male and female, to keep them offspring alive on the face of the earth, of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot them from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of the waters came upon the earth. And Noah and, Noah and his son and his wife and his son's wives with him went to the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, and of animals that are not clean, and of birds, sorry. And of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah. God had commanded Noah, and after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all fountains of the great deep births forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to its kind, and every bird, according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven was covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that move on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the, on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, 
and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The word of God. All right. Thank you, M.M. and Derby and A.J. That was a long reading. But thank you for getting us through it. We are in the middle of a series going through the book of Genesis. And so far in Genesis, we've seen God create the world out of nothing. He, he looks down and he creates everything that's there. He makes it good. He makes it hospitable for humanity. He places a man and woman in a garden as this crowning moment of his creation. And he invites them into a relationship with him, a relationship of trust and dependence and Hardly any time goes by before the man and woman decide, forget that. We don't want God telling us to do. We think life works better with us calling the shots. We think God's holding out on us, that his rules are actually intended to keep us from being the fullness of what we can be. And so they disobey him. They eat the one fruit that God said, don't eat that. And God comes in, he gives them consequences. But in the midst of giving out consequences, he gives this promise. He says, this snake tricked you into eating the fruit. You've allied yourself with the snake against me. You deserve the same fate as the snake, but I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to put enmity between you and the snake. I'm going to give a descendant who comes from the woman's line, who's going to crush this snake once and for all. And you as humanity are going to have victory over the snake. And then we move into the next passage and, and the offspring of the woman comes. We're excited for the rescue to arrive. And we very quickly realize something is very wrong because she has two sons, one good, one bad, and the bad one kills the good one. The rescue plan seems to be ruined, but God steps in. God provides a new child of promise so that this promised line can continue. So the rescue can continue. And we looked last week at that family tree of Seth, the, the son of promise that's continuing this promise that God's gonna send someone that through this family, humanity can be rescued. But as we come to today's passage, we discover a horrible, horrible truth that as humanity has been spreading and filling the earth, according to God's command, evil and wickedness has been spreading with us. That things have gotten so bad that God has to step in and act to make things right. And we see that God is patient in doing that, but his patience doesn't last forever. And there comes a point where in order to be a loving and just God, he must act. And that's the point that we reach in today's passage. So today we're going to see that God's love meets evil with judgment and salvation. God's love meets evil with judgment and salvation. We'll look at evil, judgment, and salvation. But first let's pray. Father, we pray for our hearts as we look at this passage today, that you would be speaking to us, that you would be helping us to see this passage, this, this tough passage as good news not just abstractly good because it's somewhere in the Bible, but actually good news that connects with our lives today, that we would see your character, your father's heart for your creation, and we would be drawn to you through, even through this passage of your judgment. And in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see in this passage is evil. You know, in our world, we don't tend to take the idea of sin very seriously as a society. 
right? We, we can tell that because we describe cakes as sinfully good. Any of you ever heard of like a chocolate cake described as sinfully good? In America, people look forward to going away for the weekend and, and spending a weekend in Sin City, right? It's, it's not something bad. It's something enjoyable and fun and pleasurable. And we, in our society, when people use the word sin, they tend to think of something that, you know, you, you probably shouldn't do it. Your waistline might not forgive you if you do it but it's so enjoyable, it's so fun, that it's really worth it, even if there are consequences later on. That's how our society tends to think of sin. Even with everyday things we do that we know are wrong, we find ways to just downplay the severity of it. I'm not, I'm not lying, I'm just sugarcoating the truth. I'm not really stealing if they're not gonna notice that it's gone. We find ways to take the things that we do and make them sound like they're not that bad. And we do this because our culture operates on this belief that, that at the deepest level, fundamentally, people, the average person you meet on the street is good. Sure, there might be some crazy people like Hitler who are really, really bad, but the average person like you and me on the street is fundamentally good. Sometimes we do things we shouldn't do. Sometimes those things bring consequences. Maybe that's a little extra weight. Maybe that's us having videos of us doing embarrassing things. Maybe it's something that ends up with us having a police record. But overall, even when we do those things, we're still at the core, good people who made a mistake. That's how our society tends to think of humanity. And the Bible's picture of sin is quite different than our world's picture of sin. When the Bible talks about sin, it's talking about an orientation of our being that at the most fundamental level doesn't want God to be God. At the most fundamental level, it says, God, I know better than you. If I were the one making decisions about how the universe should run, things would work better than with you making those decisions. So you step back, get off the throne, and let me show you how it works best. And when the Bible uses the word sin, it's referring either to that attitude in our hearts that says, God, forget you, let me be God instead because I can do a better job of it. Or the thoughts and words and actions that flow out of our hearts when we're operating from that place. So it's this attitude that says, God, I know better than you, I'm a better God than you. Or the actions, thoughts, and words that come out of that. And it's clear in the Bible, the only reason we ever think, say, or do these wrong, sinful things is because we first have this orientation of our hearts that wants to be God in God's place. You know, I was once uh, helping lead an alpha course. It's an intro to Christianity. And I was talking with the members of my group. And one of them actually said to me, like, you know, even if God's way really is the best way to live life, and if following his way would help me have better results in life, I'd rather not trust in him and make my own choices. I'd rather mess up and make mistakes and know that I did it doing it my way than trust in God and have things go better for me because I'm just following him. And in our culture, that's a normal attitude that many, many, many people have. I mean, if we're honest, how many of us feel that way all the time, even if we are Christians ourselves. But the reality is that is, according to the Bible, like the essence of what sin is about. It's saying, God, 
I want to make my own choices. I want to be responsible for my own results. Even if things end up worse than they would following you, just let me be in charge. And the Bible is clear that when we operate out of that place in our hearts and that attitude, the thoughts, words, and actions that come out of it are hurtful and harmful and lead to death. They don't always result in death immediately, but they're always oriented in that direction. They're moving on that trajectory. And I realize you're probably sitting there right now thinking, we just read all about a flood. Why are you talking all about sin? And here's why. Because this attitude of sin, this attitude of wanting to be God, not wanting to obey God or follow him or trust in him, but just wanting to run their own lives. This was the attitude that it infested every thought, every moment for the people of Noah's world. And the actions that flowed out of these thoughts and attitudes, they were incredibly harmful. They were incredibly destructive. And if we approach this passage with our culture's view that people are fundamentally good, we sometimes do bad things, but fundamentally we're good, that sin's not that big of a deal, then everything God does in this passage to address that problem of sin, it's gonna seem harsh, it's gonna seem cruel, it's gonna seem like the biggest overreaction possible. But if we learn to understand the way that God sees sin, then it's gonna give us a, a greater glimpse of what God is actually doing in this passage. If we don't see sin the way that God sees it, this passage will make us angry at God. If we see sin the way that God sees it, this passage is gonna lead us to praise God for his incredible patience and mercy and love. So that being said, this passage, it starts by outlining some of the evil, some of the sin that's happening in the world of Noah's time. And it's a really, really confusing passage on lots and lots of levels. Like if you read through commentaries, all the commentaries are like, this passage is the hardest one to understand in the entire book of Genesis, okay? So we're not gonna be able to go in depth into all of this right now. But in chapter six, it starts with these verses that talk about the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. Now, what is going on here? Who are these sons of God? Who are the daughters of man? Great question. We don't know. There are a couple main theories about it that people go back and forth about. And I'm gonna outline these theories and you're probably gonna look at at least one of them and be like, that's crazy. But each of these theories have reasons, solid reasons that people believe them and solid reasons that people think they have to be wrong. So theory number one is that the sons of God are angels and the daughters of man are humans. And what's happening here is angels are coming down, marrying human women and making half human, half angel babies. Now, there are good reasons that people believe this. Like any other time this word sons of God appears in the Bible, it's talking about angels. So there are solid reasons to believe that. There are also some problems with that. Like, why does God only punish humanity if that's what's going on here, right? The other theory, the other main theory is that the sons of God are the descendants of Seth, this righteous line, the good line that God's gonna send a rescuer from. And the daughters of man are the descendants of Cain, the evil one. 
and that somehow God didn't want them intermarrying between families, but the sons of Seth didn't care. They just saw that this daughter of Cain was beautiful. They married her and they were corrupting this line that was supposed to be pure and spreading evil on the earth. And again, that view has problems because nowhere else in the Bible are the descendants of Seth called the sons of God. And there's no explicit prohibition between them intermarrying between families. So each of these family, each of these theories has things that make it plausible. Each of these theories has things that make it questionable. We don't really know which is right or whether it's something totally different completely, but regardless of which of those is right, the big, most important thing that we need to see about what's happening here is that there's a perversion of God's good plan for marriage. Regardless of what type of perversion is happening, there's something happening in the marriage relationship that's outside the boundaries that God set for human flourishing within marriage, and people are being harmed through this. And one of the ways that Genesis clues us in to what's happening here is that it puts the thing that they're doing here in the exact same language as what Eve did when she ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden. So if you go back to chapter three, verse uh, six, it says the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and it was to be desired to make one wise and she took of its fruit and ate. So you see, saw, good, took. When you fast forward to chapter six, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, same word as good in Hebrew, and they took as their wives and as they chose. Saw, good, took, repeated in both passages, telling us whatever is happening here with the sons of God and daughters of man, it's as horrible and evil in God's eyes as what Eve did in the garden by taking that fruit. Whatever is happening here, whatever interpretation you choose to follow, this is not good. And when God sees that it's happening, whatever this perversion of marriage is, he decides he needs to step in and put an end to it. And remember how God sees sin. It's, it's the attitudes and actions that hurt and harm the people that God loves. So God stepping in to put an end to this behavior, not because, oh, the people are so happy and I hate seeing people happy and I just want everyone to be miserable because I'm God and I'm no fun. No, that's not what's happening. What's happening is he desires to see people happy. And he sees that the things they're doing are getting in the way of lasting true human happiness. He's not stepping in to put an end to this behavior because he's some cruel tyrant. He's stepping in to put an end to this behavior because he's a loving father. He wants to protect future generations from suffering the same things that were happening during Noah's day. And so God decides to act in a way that's gonna curb this human evil that's harming the people he loves. But that's not all that's happening during Noah's day. In verse four, it talks about these people called the Nephilim. And again, we have no clue who these people are, but it's very clear from the passage that, that they were people who were somehow violent, somehow celebrating violent violence. That from a human perspective, their violent deeds made them great and awesome and heroic. But from God's perspective, he looked at them and he said, look, all your violence, it's killing the people that I love. 
It's spreading harm and hurt on the earth. I cannot let this go on. And so God stepping in to stop the spread of these Nephilim, again, it's, it's his huge no to the harm and violence that hurts and kills the people he loves. And so between the issues that were happening in marriage in those days, the Nephilim and their violence and various other things that are happening in the world of Noah's day, The condition of humanity is so bad that by Noah's lifetime, here's the summary chapter six, verse five gives. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You can't get worse than that. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All the plans humanity was making, all the actions they were doing, they were harming one another. They were not trusting in God or obeying God. They were abusing one another. They were seeking to take advantage of one another. And and this hurt and harm had become universally present in all human interaction. If you fast forward a few verses to, to verse 11, It says the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. This word corrupt, it means ruined or destroyed. You can think of it. Have any of you ever had this happen? You're probably more responsible than me, so hopefully not. But have you ever put a container of food into the fridge and it sort of got pushed to the back and you forgot about it for a few weeks? And then you're digging through the fridge and you pull it out and you're like, the entire thing is mold. And you like, don't even want, like you're halfway tempted to just throw out the container because you're like, that's nasty. But you know, there's nothing in that container that's salvageable. Your only choice, it, it seems extreme, but your only choice is to open the container, dump it out and scrub it down thoroughly because it's just nastiness in there. When God looks at the world of Noah's day, that's essentially what he sees. The evil, the harm, the abuse, it's so widespread that he said, I just need to dump the whole thing out and scrub it clean. And again, that reaction of sending the flood, starting over, it seems so harsh to people living in our world today. But according to the passage, God actually doesn't do anything to the world that the world wasn't already in the process of doing to itself. Right? The passage says the world of Noah's day was so evil, so bad that if God just stepped back and did nothing, humanity essentially would have wiped itself out. God fast forwards the process a little bit, but he doesn't do anything to humanity that humanity wasn't already in the process of doing to itself. And if you read through the passage, it uses a variety of terms over and over and over to highlight and emphasize the fact that the world of Noah's day was just broken in every way possible. There's violence, there's problems with marriage, there's just evil everywhere. And regardless of the specifics of of how that played out or what that looked like, again, humanity is at the point where if it's left to itself, it's gonna wipe itself out. Does that sort of remind you of conversations in today's world about nuclear weapons? We're on the verge of just wiping ourselves out. And I feel like it's important here to make some comments about our world today and in case your mind is going to like parallels between our world and theirs. Because it doesn't take an expert to recognize that our world today is also a pretty messed up place. 
Right? We don't know exactly what was happening in Noah's day. So point to point comparison is not helpful or possible. But I mean, you just look around the world. There's predatory business practices that are just designed to keep poor people in debt. So they keep putting money into the pockets of the rich. There's huge growth in drug use and violence in our world. The pornography industry just traps people in addiction and fuels the human trafficking industry and all other types of things that are happening in our world that are harmful and hurtful and abusive and sinful. Our world is a mess. And on one level, compared to what happened with this flood in Noah's day, it can often feel like God's not doing anything about it. Right? Life just continues going on. Things are going okay. Has God changed and stopped caring about the wickedness of the world? Or is it that like our world still hasn't reached the point where we're as bad as Noah's world and so we can just keep going because that's okay? I don't know all the answers, but I know a couple things. First, God makes it clear over and over in the Bible that his ways are not our ways and that we're never gonna understand fully what he's doing or why he's doing it. So if you want all the answers, I'm sorry, you're gonna be very disappointed <laughs> by trying to figure out what God is doing and why. But second, we do see throughout the Bible that God is incredibly patient. We see over and over and over in the Bible, there are times where God, like people deserve to have God's judgment crash down on them and God waits sometimes hundreds of years before sending it. Many scholars believe that with Noah right here, when God decides the world's so evil, I need to wipe it out. And he tells Noah to build an ark. He actually waits a hundred years to give Noah time to build the ark before he sends the flood, right? The world is so evil. He's like, I got to wipe it out. He gives the people a hundred more years to get things straight, to turn from their evil, to stop doing what they're doing wrong. And they just don't. With Abraham, he tells him, I'm going to send you into the promised land. You're going to take this land over. The people here are evil, but I'm going to give them 400 more years to make things right. And when they don't do that, then you're going to come in. God is so patient. And one of his big reasons for patience is to give people a chance to turn from their evil on their own and follow him. Some of the New Testament writers mentioned that, that actually the time that Noah was building the ark was a time given by God so that the people of Noah's day could turn and trust in God and follow him. And they just didn't. And so we know from this, if you see evil happening and evil people seem to just prosper because of their evil, don't assume that God's inaction is him approving of what they're doing. Don't assume that God's inaction is an invitation for you to join them in what they're doing. It's not. It's an invitation for them to stop on their own initiative before God steps in and stops them. And the third thing I know about our world today is that God is a just judge and that in the end, he will make sure that all evil is repaid as it deserves. I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know whether it will happen in this lifetime, but throughout the Bible, he shows that his character is reliable and that he will make things right. And in Noah's day, God does that by bringing a flood to bring an end to humanity's evil, which brings us to God's judgment. And see, just as our world today tends to downplay sin and its effects and human evil, 
we also have a tendency to think of God's justice and judgment primarily as bad news, which makes sense because if sin's not that big of a deal, then coming down harshly against it is disproportionate. Being harsh against sin, so, so harsh that you bring death as the result of sin, it can only be justified as a proper response if sin itself is a deadly evil. Otherwise, being harsh against it is just cruelty and overreaction. But when this passage talks about God's justice and the judgment he brings on human sin, it doesn't see it as an overreaction on any level. And it doesn't see his justice as being incompatible with his love. You know, our world tends to think a God who is loving couldn't possibly judge people. But that's not true. Nothing could be further from the truth, right? I have two young kids and I love my kids. If I'm at the park and someone comes and starts beating up my kids and I just stand back and I'm like, I'm a loving father. Loving fathers can't get angry. Loving fathers can't disperse judgment against people. I just have to sit back and let this happen. My sitting back and doing nothing doesn't prove that I'm a loving father. It proves that I hate my children because a loving father is gonna step in and protect the children that he loves. A loving father is gonna be angry at the people who harm the children he loves. A loving father is gonna do whatever it takes to protect the children that he loves. I actually, it's not that justice and anger are incompatible with love. It's that justice and anger are necessary because I'm a loving dad. You can't love without seeking to bring justice to the people who hurt the people you love. And the evil happening in Noah's day, it was so bad that it made God's justice necessary because the people he loved were being so deeply hurt and harmed. The world was so evil, these harmful attitudes and behavior, they were so widespread that God knew unless he stepped in and gave the world a total reset, this would just continue and continue and continue into future generations until humanity wiped itself out. See, here's what that means. The thing that God led God to send this flood was his love for you and me. Because we are the future generations. We are the ones he wanted to protect from whatever was happening in Noah's day that was causing such harm on the earth. God's love for you and me led him to step in and stop this cycle of violence in that ancient world. It led him to cut off the horrible things that were happening there so that they wouldn't have to be the part of our experience in the world. The flood seemed so harsh and cruel, but it actually flowed out of place of God's love for us. His justice, it's a protective justice that steps in to protect the people he loves, including you and me. And it's important to remember that as he sends this judgment, he's not some robot just sitting back connected to a machine, having AI algorithms tell him what to do. He's not like devoid of emotions throughout this process, just calculating the exact punishment that the program tells him to give out. No, he's a loving father. He's grieved by the evil of the world. And he steps in to fix it, even though the solution is harsh. We see in chapter six, verse six, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. He's not like a cosmic Spock who just passively gives out judgment with no emotion. He loves the world so deeply that when he sees it broken and going wrong, it brings pain and sadness to him. 
the evil of the world touches his heart. It touches him at the deepest level of who he is because he loves the people who are suffering from it. And he knows that the evil that's happening requires his action to set it right. And so how does God send his justice? Through a flood, a flood that will wipe out all life, human and animal, and give a fresh start to the earth. And this flood comes and Genesis presents the flood as an undoing of creation itself. If you go back to Genesis one, you have God making the world and the world is covered with water and God pulls back the water to create space for life. And then he fills that space with life. And in the flood, God just sends the water from above and below to fill that land back in and wipe out everything he had made. It's complete reset, a complete undoing of creation. And then as we'll see next week, he, he starts over again fresh by re-separating the waters. And in the eyes of the author of Genesis, this flood, it's a real historical event that really happened in our real world. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. There was a real Noah. There was a real flood. He survived it on a real ark. And there's debate among Bible scholars about whether Genesis is saying the flood covered the entire world as we know it, or the entire world as people in the Bible knew it. Um, and the Hebrew has some ambiguity in the meaning of its words. So like the word for country and the word for world is the same. So when it says I'm flooding the whole world, it could also be like the whole country or the whole region. Um, or when it says I'm wiping out all life under heaven, Paul says in the New Testament, that the gospel has been preached to all creatures under heaven, which is in his case, clearly hyperbole. So there could be some of that going on here, but regardless of whether it's the whole world as we know it, or the whole world as the Bible people knew it, even if it is just a regional flood that didn't get to Australia and the Americas, it was big enough that it covered the entire known world at that point. And that area was completely obliterated and wiped out by the flood. It was an event big enough and destructive enough that nothing like it has ever happened again in human history. It was a historical event. It was a complete reset of all life known in the biblical world. But even in the midst of that, of something so seemingly harsh and cruel, God is not doing it because he hates humanity. He's sending it because he loves us. And he knows that something so drastic is the only way to protect humanity from ourselves. I don't know about you, but that's a hard truth for me to hear because I don't like to think that I'm that bad of a person. I, I don't think, I like to think that the, the bad things I do could ever meet or merit a judgment that harsh. But the lengths God had to go to to deal with human evil they show that I'm far worse than I ever thought I was, which is hard, right? If, if God's justice against human sin and evil is this harsh, then maybe we need to spend more time actually reflecting on the reality of, of our sin and thanking God that he holds it back from us every moment. And not only that, but that if we're Christians, that he has washed it completely away, as we just saying, through Jesus and his blood and taken it so that that's not the thing that defines us anymore. When we, when we look at it from that angle and see sin as seriously as God sees it, 
this thing that feels horrible at first suddenly becomes an amazing gift of grace that, that God saved some, that God allowed future generations to continue despite all the human evil that was in the world. And that despite the fact that you yourself and I myself have done so many wrong and hurtful and harmful things, God has not poured his wrath out on us in this way. So we've seen human evil, we've seen God's judgment, but there's one more amazing piece of good news in this passage that we need to look at, and that is God's salvation. Because even in the midst of this complete reset, this this wiping out of all life in the known world, there is a way of salvation available from the flood. But this way of salvation, it required those who received it to take God at his word and to act in faith even when they couldn't see. It required them to take God at his word and to act in faith even when they couldn't see. In the midst of God's wrath in the flood, there was only one way to be saved. And that way was God's way. There was none of this like, you do what works for you, I'll do what works for me. If you try to do what works for you, the flood is gonna drown you and you're done, right? The only way to be saved was to listen to what God said and take him at his word. And God showed this way of salvation to his friend, Noah. Like Enoch from last week, we're told that Noah walked with God, just like you go for a walk with your good friends. Noah would walk with God and and have a personal relationship with him. They had this close, intimate relationship with one another where Noah stood apart from the wicked world that he lived in. And because of that friendship, because of that intimate relationship, God told Noah how to escape the fate of the rest of the world. And the way to be saved was to build an ark. Now, this way of salvation was not going to be easy. It required hard work. Like, remember, as Noah is doing this, they didn't have chainsaws. They didn't have trucks or tractors or wood mills. Um, They didn't have factories that could mass produce nails. So what's happening is you have to go chop down a tree, find a way to transport that tree back to your building site, find a way to mill that tree into some type of usable timber, all with just like simple hand tools. Maybe you get like a donkey to drag a tree back for you so it's a little bit easier, but you can't just load up a truck full of logs and bring them down to the mill and have tons of lumber available in a couple days. This was a long and arduous process. It was difficult. And it wasn't just hard physically, it also likely opened Noah up to ridicule. Like, can you imagine living somewhere and seeing some guy just start building a big boat in his backyard that there's no way of transporting anywhere? You're not like right on the water, so you can't just shove it in. Like, why are you doing this? What are you doing? Why would you... Aren't there better things you could do with your time? You know, Noah, it's been a couple decades since God told you to start this construction project. Do you think maybe he's forgotten about it if it's taking him so long to to actually send this rain you say is coming? And on top of all that, as if the physical labor wasn't hard enough, as if the potential ridicule wasn't hard enough, God's path of salvation required Noah to watch as everything and everyone he knew was wiped off the face of the planet. It was a hard path of salvation. 
but it was also a path of salvation that was worth it because Noah and his family survived the flood. And because they survived, that promised seed of the woman, the one who's gonna come and crush the snake, the hope of humanity, who's gonna set things right in the world, that line continued. There's still hope for humanity because of the salvation God gave Noah and his family from the flood. And like I said, like the world of Noah's day, our world is still full of sin. And it's not just in our world, but also in our hearts and our personal lives. When God's justice comes, you and I, we deserve to face his judgment. But like Noah, God offers us salvation. Like Noah, there's one way for us to be saved and only one way. And it requires us to take God at his word, even when we can't see. But unlike Noah, God has done all the work to save us. He sent his son Jesus to come to the earth, not just to to survive a flood, but to actually die and defeat sin and death once and for all, so that you and I can be forgiven and free. And the Bible tells us that if we trust in God and take him at his word, that he takes all the judgment we deserve for the things we've done wrong, and he pours it out on Jesus so we don't have to bear it. God doesn't just look at the human problem of evil from a distance and say, well, too bad for them. He actually steps down, gets involved in the mess and personally deals with it by getting his hands dirty. He becomes the author of the only lasting solution to the problem of human evil. And this this reality that we have to trust God and take him at his word, that's not easy a lot of the time. Like with Noah, it it means taking God at his word, even when the whole world is going the other direction. And I don't know if you noticed, but over and over in this passage, Noah is presented as the opposite of the world around him in every single way, shape, and form. The world around him is constantly wicked, constantly evil, constantly rebelling against God. And Noah, every time we see him here, he's listening to God, He's obeying exactly as God says to obey, doing exactly what God says to do. If we truly trust in God, it's gonna make us look different from the people around us. It's gonna make us stick out at the office when we're not willing to take advantage of people for an extra buck. It's gonna make us look different in the way that we raise our kids, in being kind and gentle with them rather than harsh and demanding that they make us look good for everyone. But it's gonna be worth it, even when we look bad, because it's the path to life. And you know the really incredible thing about the salvation that God offers us? Let me ask you a trivia question. Why did God save Noah? Anyone? No? Okay. So we see later in the passage that Noah lives properly, that he loves God. But in our first introduction to Noah, we are told none of that. In chapter six, verse eight, we're just told Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Our first introduction to Noah tells us nothing about Noah and everything about God. I mean, we're told later about these things that make Noah stand out from his generation, but even those don't earn him salvation because Noah is still a sinner, just like everyone else. But you know what that intro to Noah teaches us? Salvation always starts with God's initiative, not ours. It's not about us being good enough people that God looks at us and he's like, ah, Eric's a good one. Maybe I want him on my team. 
It's about God looking at us when we have nothing and deserve nothing and saying, I'm going to rescue them because I love them. And just as salvation was available in the midst of God's justice during Noah's day, salvation is available for you and me today from the justice we deserve from God. God has taken the initiative to reach out to us through Jesus. And now we have the invitation to respond and receive his gift of salvation. I have bad news. You are far worse than you ever thought you were. But I have amazing good news that you are far more loved than you ever dared hope. Will you take God at his word today and trust that his way really is the best, the way that leads to life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves people, that you are not able to just sit back and look at evil that harms and hurts the people you love and be apathetic to it, but that you step in and you take steps, tangible steps to rescue us, to save us from ourselves. God, I pray that you would give us hearts today that take you at your word, that trust in you, that follow what you call us to do. God, give us faith. Help us to, to rest in your salvation. And we thank you and praise you that you are a loving and saving God. In Jesus' name, amen.